0: Hi, I'm Rob Morgan, and you are listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molly, your host. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you've been around, Welcome also. Just a quick favour, whether you're new, you've been around, if you enjoyed this episode or any of your other previous episodes, I encourage you to share our podcast with your fellow tennis enthusiasts. would mean a lot to me. It helps the podcast grow. And yeah, thank you in advance. This week I speak to Robert Morgan. Robert is the coach of Rajiv Ram and Joe Salisbury, one of the world's best doubles team. He tells us all about his own tennis journey from moving from the south of England to the north on his own as a 12-year-old to finding his love for coaching, and then on to what it's like out there working with the world's best doubles guys and being there on finals day at the Slams. As usual, a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Slinger, who make the awesome portable ball machine, the Slinger Bag. As I've mentioned before, the Christmas orders are ramping up. So if you've plans to surprise anybody or yourself with a Slinger Bag, get ordering at SlingerBag.com. Okay, here's Rob. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you?
0: very well thanks thanks for having
1: me fabio i've been following your journey online all year through instagram mainly but uh you've had an awesome year you're always around on winner's day so i can't wait to find out more about that but uh, before we get going maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself how you first got into the world of tennis or when you started playing as a young kid
0: yeah, uh started playing as a family, really. So I'm one of five kids. And uh, we all used to, the four lads in the family used to play football originally. And uh, my parents thought, because well, there's one girl as well, my parents thought, what can we do as a family together? And at quite a young age, I think I was five and a half, uh, my parents took us down to the, to the local tennis club. And yeah, we just started picking up a racket and playing tennis from there, really. And uh, Yeah, that was in, um, where I'm originally from is down in Welling in Hertfordshire. And uh, yeah, that's where it all began. And how did it progress? So quite quickly, really, I guess we all, we all loved it. We had family at the tennis club, like my auntie and my uncle were at the tennis club, my cousins were there. So it was really easy for us to go down and, you know, get involved as a family and social and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, like I say, I was five and a half when that all happened and, uh, Next thing you know, I was at an indoor tennis centre at the age of like nine or 10 and started to think, oh, I like genuinely love playing this game and competing. And uh, then started to take things a little bit more seriously at the age of 12. I moved from the south of England, Hertfordshire, up to the northwest in Bolton, where I got offered a tennis scholarship and moved away from home at the age of 12. Lived with a, a host family for three or four months by myself, like during the week. Um, and then I either went and played tournaments at the weekend or went back home, which was three and a half, four hour drive. And my parents would pick me up and take me back on the Friday and drop me back on Sunday until they uh, they decided to move up as well, which was like four or five months in. And once my family had decided to move up, my mum and my dad, then my, the rest of my siblings followed. So my, my older siblings kind of followed after that.
1: At 12, you got a scholarship. That's a... First of all, getting a scholarship 12 is a big deal, but moving from, I know, the south of England to the, the northwest, that's a big move. You're going from nice weather, you know, decent weather to the south of England to the to the Game of Thrones, you know, north of the wall, cold weather.
0: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I always knew at a young age that I wanted to to try and be a professional tennis player. I mean, what that meant to be at that time was, you know, the biggest and the best players at the time back then were like Agassi, Sampras. Obviously, Federer was starting to come into the picture a little bit later on, but yeah, I remember my uh, my parents asking me if I wanted to go for a, a trial up in Bolton. So I said, yeah, absolutely. So we went up for the day, three-hour drive, three and a half-hour drive up. Met the tennis coach there at the time. Really enjoyed meeting him. Going like checking out the school the following day, and I remember having a conversation with my parents in Pizza Hut later that later that day, and they sort of said to me like, do you, do you want to move? Like, do you, do you feel like you you know want to take this leap into I guess taking tennis pretty seriously. It's totally your call, and they were unbelievably supportive with whatever decision I was going to make. And I remember just saying, "Yeah, absolutely, I want to do it." And um, yeah, it was something that I think, looking back at such a young age, it was it was a massive leap. I mean, I, moving in with a, with a they weren't strange, but at the time they seemed strange because <laughs> there were there were new people who I'd never met before. They had two other people that were hosting with them at the time. They were hosting two Bolton Reserve football players who were a bit older. They were like 18, 19 years old, and I was 12. And, you know, I remember my room was next door to the older lad's room, and I remember his music being played to like 10, 10 at night like pretty loud. And I was obviously trying to sleep. I was was young. I remember plucking up the courage and going (laughs) knocking on his door and just like in my pajamas, just stood there knocking on the door and just he he opened the door. I was like, can you turn the music down please? And he was like, oh yeah, sorry, pal. And at at that point, I guess I I built quite a lot of character of, you know, being away from home and finding out about myself and realizing that I had to do a lot of things, you know, off my own back. And it was quite a it was, a, it was a good move for me, even though it was was very, very difficult.
1: You learn the things, I'm sure a lot of kids, they're 20, 22, they move out of home, they still don't do them.
0: Yeah, it was, I mean, the the whole school thing as well was, you know, again, looking back, an unbelievably great learning experience for me and character building experience. But, you know, moving from the South to the North, I mean, I've still got my, my Southern accent now, moving up to the North, that was something that was quite obvious to, you know, the other school kids was that I I wasn't from around there. And that was quite, it was quite a big thing going into school. And also, you know, having this thing about you where you start school and you know literally no one. And obviously, because you're part of a, you'd now joined this academy and you're, you're part of a scholarship program, you'd leave school at random times to go and play tennis. So everyone was kind of like picking, picking your brains up. What are you doing leaving the class midway through? Or why don't you do this class or that class and that class? And, you know, it was, it was quite difficult to to kind of explain to kids my own age why I was doing it. Because to them, tennis or any sport to a lot of the kids at the time was just purely recreational you do it at lunchtime break time after school at the weekends but for me it was something that really early on I always could see myself doing obviously now I'm a coach but as I I saw myself as wanting to be a player and I was in it for the long run
1: it is it's it's a religion and you just got to Get out there at random times and just get, get it done. But where, how did that progress then? So you're in Bolton, your parents move after, move up to the north after a while. And what happens next?
0: So at the age of 15, I left Bolton and went to one of the LTA academies, which was in Loughborough. My younger brother, George, was also. he was an exceptional young junior player and he got a place at the academy as well. And again, I did the same thing again. My parents actually stayed in Bolton this time. I moved in with a host family for a short period of time. And my brother was another host family. And we trained at the LTA Academy there for for a couple of years. Then at the age of 16, after I finished my GCSEs, I said to myself, I'm going to, I'm going to give tennis a real go. So I'm going to play full time for a year. If it goes well, then I'll continue and try and quote unquote go pro. And if it doesn't go quite as well, then I'm going to try and probably take the university route in America, which is what I had in my mind at the time. So a year into playing, I thought it was going pretty well. Won a couple junior ITFs, doubles, and you know, played some singles and thought at the time that you know, things were going great. And then I got a very small injury, nothing massive, just an impingement in my shoulder, which put me out of training for, a long, for about two, three months of actually not hitting much. So in that time, I decided to be at home. And in my time at home, I started doing my coaching qualifications at a young age. I think I was just just shy of 18, maybe 18. And I absolutely loved it. And then I did my level one, two and three all in the same year and decided that I was never going to go back and try and play like pro. I was earning a little bit of money. I was still doing the sport that I loved. and I just found this other side of the sport, which I really enjoyed being a part of and learning about and meeting new people, and yeah, it just went from there, really. I I coached at Bolton for six years following that, so up to the age of 25, 24. And at Bolton, I ended up coaching my brother who played professionally for a while. A very good player, won junior women and doubles, was number six in the world, ITF, and was, uh, yeah, an exceptional player. Uh, Coached him and coached a few other guys to a futures challenger level, and I was doing that at the age of 20. And I knew then that I could see myself, it sounds a bit cringy, but I, could, I knew that I could see myself like going quite far in the sport as a coach because at such a young age, I felt like I had the mentality to always learn, always take what I can from other players, coaches, senior people within the sport. And I really felt like my passion was there to learn all the time. Um, yeah, I feel like that gave me lots of uh, good opportunities from then on in. And then I, I left Bolton and went down to Bath and worked there for four years. Worked as the ITF head junior coach there. And then I had to kind of make a real split decision on what I was going to do. I th- said to myself, "Am I going to? Am I going to stay? Am I going to stay in academy?" and feel like I could go into a head coach role in the academy and pursue my career that way? Or am I going to go and take a massive chance, pedal to the floor and really just shoot for the top? Because in the the final year of being in the academy at Bath, and this is totally just on me, it's not on where I was at, all the people I was working with, they're fantastic there. But I lost a little bit of my vision that I felt I had when I first started coaching. So... I had, a, I had an opportunity with a player called Jay Clark, a British player called Jay Clark.
1: Jay's been on the show before. Yeah. Good guy.
0: Great guy. Nice family. Uh, his sister Yaz, I know fairly well, she, she called me up and she said, look, Jay's you know, looking for someone to travel with him for two weeks to go to China for two challenges. Like, Would you be up for doing it? And this was on Saturday. And bearing in mind, I'm, I'm, em- I'm employed at Bath at this mm. point. So I've got a full-time job where I'm getting paid, you know, properly. And I said to myself, well, I can't, you know, do both because I am i won't be fulfilling my job here. So I've, I've literally got to make a decision. I remember having a conversation with my brother saying, what do I do? And he just said, look, if it goes well, things could progress really quickly. Like, I think you should take it. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. So I remember going in on Monday and speaking to the head coach, uh, the director, Barry Scholar, again, fantastic guy, I still speaks to him now. And I just said to him, I sat him down and said, look, Barry, there's absolutely no right way of saying this, but uh, I'm leaving. And uh, you know, we, we had a conversation, but the reason why I had to do it so quickly was because I was going to China the next Wednesday and I had to get a Chinese visa at that time and I had to get everything sorted. I had to leave my flat, I had to move all my stuff in my little Toyota Yaris that I had out my flat, drive all the way up the <laughs> north four hours, my, my life in a little tiny car. I had to get everything sorted. And I literally left that day in the next 20 minutes with my my carbs already packed, my flat was already. I had to move everything out, and I just went. And Jay won that first challenger that we did, and then he offered me more weeks through the grass court through Wimbledon. Um, and then that was always going to be like a short term gig, like kind of to the end of the year. And then Heather Watson approached me and offered me, you know, full time job then, working with her. So I took that because it was full time. It was never. It was not a part-time thing like Jay was. And then I was working with Heather. And then in the November of 2019, Joe and Rajiv approached me. And yeah, they literally approached me and said, you know, we've, we've heard good things. Would you be would you be wanting to travel with us? And I said, I'm obviously in a situation with, with Heather at the moment. And, you know, we spoke a little more. And, it, you know, it just felt like it was the right decision to go with... Joe and Rajiv, my gut told me to to do it, and you know I could see myself, you know, doing good things with these guys. Not that I wasn't with Heather or anyone before, but it just felt like it was the right decision. And you know, as I've as I've progressed through my career, I've always I've always said to myself that when something feels right, even if it might be difficult, just do it. And each time I've done that in my career, from the age of twelve, moving north. To leaving Bolton, at the first, my first proper job was actually was really difficult. Then leaving Bath became a little bit easier. So then leaving another person came a little bit easier. So then now being in the position where I am now, where I feel like all of those difficult moves that I'd had paid off to, to get to where I am today. Just jumping on here.
1: Rob actually purchased a tennis pointer from us last year. I only saw it when I went to put his number in my phone the other day. And... I just want to find out how he's using it, and he tells us how he's using it. Rob, when I was adding your number to my to my phone to add you on WhatsApp, I was like, your number was there already, and I was like, that's really strange. I was like, okay, what's going on here? So then I went on to the website back end. I put in the number. It's like you popped up. And I was like, oh wait, Rob bought a pointer from us uh, last Christmas, nearly a year ago. It was just it was come up to Christmas. I think he even got an express because we'd shipping issues, but. Tell me, how's the pointer been?
0: Fun, great fun. I mean, I I saw on Instagram and I was like, well, that'd be interesting. See if we can uh, we can use that some way. And uh, yeah, like you said, I bought it just before Christmas and I took it to Australia with me just before the Australian Open. We had quite a good tournament there, so it might have been down to the pointer. Um, I, we 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 took it out uh, and we used it for some of our warm ups, just a bit of fun, did some volley stuff, and we weren't on the court, you know. Um, Who was using the pointer? With Joe and Rajiv.
1: Okay, I just had to confirm that.
0: Yeah, so no, it was uh, it was great fun. I mean, we, we, we took it out for five minutes at the start of a couple of sessions. We used it off the court, doing some body stuff with. Um, yeah, we've used it, you know, just for, for some fun times on the court. And uh, when I come back to base, I do a little bit of work with some juniors as well. And um, yeah, it's, it's great for them to actually, you know, just swing around and uh, have some fun with as well. Nice. I'm super
1: pumped to hear that.
0: It's a great tool, genuinely. is fun.
1: I did see Lloyd Glasspool. I was using one in Wimbledon to warm up this year. He was on court. But yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for sharing that. For those that don't know, Joe Sales Salisbury and uh, Rajiv Ram are some of the best doubles players in the world. They've won Grand Slams, Mixed Doubles titles. You've been there along with them. But you said they approached you. Now, you were mainly, as far as this conversation goes, I know you worked with a lot of singles players. And what attracted them
0: to you? The, I know power phrasing here a little bit, but uh, I remember Joe messaged me, I was driving and he, and, he, and, he, and he texted me and I thought I'll read that one once I've, once I've pulled up and I remember reading the message and it was, hey Rob, how you doing? Long time no speak. Because I used to play against Joe when I was a young lad, talking like 11, 12, 13 years old and I always knew Joe. And he said like, but myself and Rajiv are looking for someone to, to, to work with us next year. We've heard some good things about you. You know, would you be interested? If you are, give us a call. That was literally it. And um, yeah, I contacted them. I gave Joe a ring, and yeah, the 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 ball was rolling from there.
1: Nice. And how's that journey been so far? What is actually Dave O'Hare, a mutual friend who I'm sure you know well, told me he's he's been on the show before. He's coming back in a few weeks. He's moved from a doubles coach and working with a lot of double specialists to single specialist. And he says in in doubles, doubles is a bit more. You know, it's stricter, let's say, you're looking at number stats, singles can be a bit more creative in the training phase and the game phase, but you've gone the other way. You've gone from the creative stuff to the number stuff. How's that transition been for you?
0: At the beginning, it was something that I looked at and, and, and I felt like I needed to learn very, very quickly. So doing what I always do best, I always feel like I can, when I feel like something's going to be difficult, I just full on head on, meet it and just commit. And I remember watching hours and hours and hours and hours of video in a very short period of time. I'm talking, I'm no exaggeration, I'm talking five, six hours a day of matches, doubles matches of Joe Rajiv, you know, other doubles players, just to really kind of zone in. Louis Kai, I'm pretty sure has been on this show as well. Louis Kai is a, a mentor of mine who's someone that helps with the team as well. So I had him to, to, to pick his brains and, you know, unbelievable fountain of knowledge, which... I think everyone can take something from. Uh, So he was, he was a fantastic help to kind of get started. But I guess that the biggest thing is in any sort of coaching, even if it's going from singles to doubles, you're still working with individuals. And I feel like that's one of my strengths is working with people and getting to know them. And the key thing is listening because you learn a lot from listening and from my experience of playing to a relatively good level to working with, you know, singles players in the past, you pick up a lot really quickly just by seeing the smallest things. You know, you, you, watch, you watch one match, you've picked up something that you just won't ever unsee. You won't ever unsee it once you've seen it. And
1: Maybe give us an example.
0: So one of the first things that I that I saw was the, the importance of even more so than in the singles game, but the importance of the team energy. And I'm just talking about, I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, how they are between points, jumping on their toes, you know, checking the strings, whatever. I'm talking about the genuine chemistry that the team has, the importance of that, the importance of clear, basic communication to the point where it has to be absolutely mastered. And if it's not mastered, then that can literally be the difference between you winning a match, losing a match, being... 15 in the world and being five in the world, in my opinion, you have to have that chemistry to be at the top. And um, that's something that we've worked extremely hard on as a team, you know, all three of us. I remember starting working with the guys, they were individually ranked 24 and 22 in the world in doubles. Now they're three and four, and they've been a career high as, uh, as a team as one, and they currently sit two. and we firmly believe that one of the biggest strengths that we have is our communication is crystal clear, both as a team and on the court. And the team chemistry is fantastic. We're not scared of approaching any conversation, anything that needs to happen. It's said, whether it's uncomfortable or not, we do it. We talk about it and we get better and nothing's nothing's taken personally because everyone knows that the team is at the forefront of the mind and it's it's for the benefit of the team, whatever we do.
1: And how do you work on something like that sort of communication that you mentioned?
0: Super simple. Address it more. It sounds like it's the most, It's you know, it's it's that simple. I mean, you're working with professional tennis players here who are, they're unbelievable athletes. They know how to hit a tennis ball. You know, they're extremely skilled individuals. I'm not teaching them how to hit a ball. If I are, if I am, then it's, It's a small cue of how to do something or what to do. But the the biggest thing about working on that side of stuff, the communication, the team chemistry is you just talk about it more pre-match, post-match. You know, you have your, you have your, your deep conversations as a team about certain things. And I feel like on reflection now, this is actually a really good question. Looking back on some of our conversations as a team, if we hadn't have addressed some of the uncomfortable things, we would never have built the team chemistry that we have. Um, so that's actually, that's a great question because that's really kind of, you know, jolted something in my mind There, it's really good.
1: Can you say anything that's what would be uncomfortable?
0: So for example, if I, if I expect more from them in one way or another, or if I feel like I can squeeze more out of them, I'm going to raise that. And sometimes you do get some pushback because... The player sometimes or more often than not feels like they're doing enough. Obviously, as a coach, you see different things and you feel different things to the player, but that goes both ways. So if they feel like I need to be doing something better as a coach, I really believe like you have to listen to that and you have to take it on board. You have to be thick skinned and you have to just park your ego and everything that you have is a defense mechanism against that just park it because you're going to learn something and I'm a very I'm a very strong-willed guy I've always been a. have never shied away from confrontation I've always been proud of who I am and what I do and learning that subtlety as a coach is extremely important to becoming better and to making the difference and to be having that connection with the player because if, if a player feels like they can talk to you and be totally honest with you and you not judge them, that can be the strongest connection that you can have with the player. And I truly believe that. I will always prioritize that now as a coach. is I've always loved feedback. Sometimes I've pushed back against some feedback that I don't necessarily like. But when I've pushed back, the results have always been worse.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Asics Tennis. Asics is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. That purpose is also in their name. Asics is an acronym which means Anime Sano Incorporate Sano, a Latin phrase meaning sound mind, sound body. Today, the brand is still dedicated to that founding belief of demonstrating the positive effects sport and movement can have on our mental well-being all over the World. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever, which includes the new Court FF3 Novak. The shoe designed from the ground up with the help of Novak Djokovic. Get your pair now at ASICs.com. It can be hard more, maybe from let's say my experience outside the court, maybe not in tennis relationships, but maybe even asking for a podcast review. I can say, look, what did you think of the podcast? And they're like, oh, it was great. You're great. And you're like, seriously, is there anything I can do better? And they're like, no, no, everything's great. But there's always something we can do better. And people think they're going to hurt your feelings by saying, I know you should breathe less or you should say so, you know, but ultimately they're helping you in the long run. And you may, you always feel a bit bad when somebody tells you something. But as you say, you got to put that aside and for your own benefit. It can make you a better whatever.
0: Exactly. And I think one of my philosophies is, as a coach is see yourself as a player. Like as a coach, see yourself how you like to have been as a player, which is you know you want to take the feedback, you're willing to take constructive criticism, you want to get better, you build a team around you. As a coach, you should do that. You should have a mentor. You should used to have people that you look to. You should have several people that you bounce ideas off. You should be open to development, just as you would do as a player to take yourself that a little bit further. And you know that's something that I I do. You know. I train in the gym, I go to the gym, I stretch every day, you know, like I speak to certain people, which are going to give me some great feedback and make me feel good about myself. But I'm also going to speak to people who are going to challenge me on certain things, just as you would do as a player. You'd look to one coach for confidence and whatnot. and You might look to someone else to really push you and challenge you with something else. And you go to the gym to get fit and to get stronger. And you always want to get better physically, mentally, and, you know, in every single way.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And tell me, you mentioned mentors and you mentioned Louis Kaya before. And I think when we had him on the show, he was just landed in New York. He was getting ready to meet all the guys. He was saying how they all, you know, they all try and train at separate times so you can spend time with them all on court, which is, but how does that dynamic work between obviously you have your team and then you have Louis as the consultant coach. How do you guys all work together?
0: So Louis is part of the LTA. he's British tennis So he works with all the Brits, the doubles players, and all the Brits. And it's all a very open and honest communication between everyone. Everyone knows who's going to see Louis at what time. And it's just organized. It's just planned out. We said this, everyone sends Louis their times. And then Louis goes, right, I'm going to do you here, you here, you here, you here. And then he tends to be very busy because there's, we've got a lot of guys that are doing very well in doubles at the moment. So at a tournament, that's kind of how it works. And the dynamic when he's not there, which is, you know, quite often, is we, we speak to Louis when we feel like we need some extra advice we speak to Louis on a daily basis if we feel like we need to or Louis will contact you if he feels like he's seen something or you know it's it's very flexible it's a very uh it's a very flexible relationship which which works because everyone knows that everyone wants to do well they want everyone else to do well and Louis wants you to do well and it's it's quite easy when everyone has the has the same Same idea of how how it should work.
1: And what sort of extra stuff is he providing the team that, let's say, you're not?
0: So, Louis is great because, obviously, I'm with the players one-on-one there, or them two and me, or sometimes do individuals with them. And, you know, you know how they feel that day. You know whether they're feeling good or not. You know whether they're mentally in the right headspace or not. You know whether they're actually striking the ball well or not. You know, you know whether they're having a good day or a bad day. Louis can provide just literally facts that, again, some people might not like that. But in general, I think one of the reasons why we are such a great Dubs nation, Great Britain, is because we do take that feedback very well. Of You need to be here, your percentage is a little bit low, needs to be here. You know, obviously I can provide that feedback, but it's a little bit different coming from Louis, who is kind of the guru of that, he kind of created a lot of the stuff of which modern doubles is based on now. I mean, he's been around for 30 years and he's had numerous Grand Slam champions that I'm sure on his hands and feet, he couldn't count. So he, he's, he's going to provide the feedback, which, you know, you might not see on the court when you're watching it live, or even when you watch it back, you might not see it. You might see something else. So two, two pairs of eyes are, are better than one.
1: Yeah, no. It sounds like it's a good team dynamic, and he's helped so many of the the Brits. I'm not sure how many are in the top hundred now. Is there still nine in the top hundred?
0: I'm not entirely sure, but there's there's plenty. We are not short of people in the top one hundred at the moment.
1: Yeah, and what's it like? So come finals day, you guys in the final, winning the finals, the U.S. Open. What's it like? What's the feeling for you as a coach?
0: Well, I'll take you back to my first Grand Slam final, which was the Australian Open, which was actually the third, the second tournament. Sorry, that I did with Rajiv and Joe. Louis wasn't there; he had to fly home. I mean, it's, it was strange because at that time, I, I was still a bit kind of like just in awe of the situation. But again, it's not about you this day. So you've got to you've got to seriously have a quick word with yourself. And I'm talking the night before how you're going to be the next day, because it's super important how you are around these these players that are in the biggest matches of their lives. And I really was conscious about just going about my day as normal. We do things as normal. We, I make sure that I let the players have their own space. I'm not, you know, do you want this? Do you want that? You know, nothing needs to change because it's a slam final of what I do. You know, I'm still going to do exactly the same thing as what I've done to get them there and what they have done to get themselves there it's just I need to make sure that I'm I'm strong I'm letting them know that they are going to be their, their best self out there and I'm there for them if they need me you know they're not alone they've got each other and they've got me in the stands they've got whoever else that's there physio wife whatever but it is it is different because it's it's quiet the, the tournament's quiet and no one's there it's the finals day. It's, it's, uh, it's a little bit, it's a little bit strange that it's the grandstand final. You think, oh, it should be really busy because that's what you see on TV. But I mean, no one's really around the test centre apart from the people that are in the final. That's, there's not very many people there compared to what it is at the start of the tournament. And uh, yeah, that feeling doesn't really change. You still have to, you know, make sure you're doing the same stuff with them. But yeah, you, you've got to be super conscious of how you are because it makes a big difference to the players.
1: How has that changed to the more recent finals?
0: Well, I think one of the biggest things, and we had this conversation, we actually lost in the semifinals of the US Open 2020 last year. We had a conversation at the end of that that loss and and we all just sort of said that this is where we we belong, this this part of the slams, you know, this is where we belong and we truly believe that, you know, we should be there. That's almost... Not necessarily like this, but I guess it's kind of like, that's where in our minds, the tournament really kind of starts. You know, we, we back ourselves to be there, you know. So as we've played more slam finals and been there with them all at uh, them all, sorry, with, with both guys, it's, uh, yeah, nothing really changes. You still get a little bit of nerves, but it's more of like, you know, that they know how they need to be. You know that they are going to go out there and do their absolute best and, as they've matured through more slam finals, just as I have, they've learned so much about themselves in those other slam finals. So getting to that point, you have to just sit back and just try and really enjoy that moment as a coach because you, you're not going to make that much of a difference on the day. It's up to the players, it's up to them to go and win that match. You just have to be strong, make sure that they you know have, have, have prepared as best they can and you don't leave any you know box unticked in terms of preparation, getting things ready for them. So they can just solely think about themselves and the team and how they're going to perform best.
1: And what's moving forward now to Tour Finals? is that That's just the, the ultimate goal for this year now, finish
0: the year. Yeah, so we, have, uh, we go to Vienna this Saturday. We've got ATP 500 there. Then we go straight to Paris for the final Masters Series of the year. And then it's on to Turin. So new venue for the World Tour Finals, which everyone's... Really excited about yeah it's going to be uh, it's going to be hopefully a strong finish, hopefully a strong finish fresh for the for the end of the year, yeah, we're just going to go out there and do what we do best and you know not put so much pressure on ourselves to go and live up to certain expectations. We just take one match at a time and uh, focus on what we've got to do, and the results will hopefully take care of themselves if they don't, then we just regroup and get better and go again next year
1: nice, hopefully they do that. Tell me, who's, who's the leader in the team? Is it more uh, Rajiv or is it more Joe?
0: They both bring different leadership qualities. So I'm, I'm actually going to say no one really in particular, but I'm going to give you an explanation why. So Rajiv has been, he's been around the, the tour for an extremely long time. Was a very good singles player as well. I think he was ranked 52 or 53 in the world as a singles player. You know, he's, he's been around the block a long time. And he brings the experience, he brings the kind of uh stability of knowledge and n- belief that oh, this is what we gotta do. Um, Joe leads in a different way. He leads with how he approaches playing certain teams or the occasion. So Joe, I think every, it's not it's not a secret at the moment that Joe tends to save you for his best tennis. And that's not consciously. He just tends to bring his best tennis at the biggest moments in tournaments. You know, he just tends to catch fire. Like, he, at some stage during a massive match, you just know that Joe's going to catch fire, that like he just will. I mean, Toron- Toronto final in the the championship tiebreak, we were playing Metic and Pavic, and Joe hit four or five in turn winners in that championship breaker, Off first and second serves. And, uh, you know, you do that and you're not really losing serve in. <laughs> as a team in, in, in that circumstance. So you kind of you're on to a winner. So he tends to lead in terms of, you know, that side of things and Rajiv tends to lead in terms of how he is and, you know, the dynamic and uh, the perspective as a team. So both great leaders in their own right.
1: These are clutch players. That's what makes the that's why they're the best, isn't it? Because they can perform when they need to perform.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the that's one of the the, the things which, you know, unless you go and you're a fly on the wall, kind of on the road all the time, you don't tend to appreciate the, the things that players do to, to be able to do that. You know, they spend a lot of time, you know, visualizing stuff, going through things and talking to you as a coach or talking to each other to be able to go out there and perform at clutch moments. We, you know, we have a plan at big moments. We have uh, a clear plan of what we're going to do and that's it. We are just going to go do it. And if, if we fail, quote-unquote, lose, then, you know, we've we've done what we could. You know, they've either, the opponents have obviously played, they might have played way better than us at that particular time. They might have played too good. So, well done to them. Or, you know, we didn't quite execute our plan as well as we could have done. So, we just see that as something that we can get better at and uh, we we move on and get better.
1: And the clear plan is definitely a huge part of communication because we both are on the same page, know exactly what you're doing that cuts down a lot of miscommunication.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that we, we talk about it before the match. We we, we have uh, a team discussion before the match on the day of the match we just talk about ourselves and how how they're going to be out there. Um and those are the things that we're going to do. You know, if someone is uh if someone is, you know, seeing the fact that we're doing that, then obviously we adapt and you know, we have to change things, but you know, the majority of the time, even if someone is knowing what we're going to do, they're still not going to beat us, usually. Um, sometimes it has happened, but most of the time it, it doesn't tend to work that way. So but if it does, then, then, then they adapt. And we talk about that as well. It's like, if we need to adapt, then we're going to do this as well. So we have, you know, we have everything, you know, ticked off.
1: And what's it like when you're playing two other Brits who, you know, they come from the same coaching techniques and same, they know the same, not drills, but they know the same, patterns, and they know what you're going to do, you know what they're going to do. How does that game of chess play out?
0: Again, that comes down to what I said right at the beginning of like, who's got the best team chemistry? Who has got the best team confidence? Who's communicating better going into the match? And also the most obvious thing is who who's the better player? Like, you know, you, you have to back yourself in that sort of situation is whether you're being a better player of the game of doubles in this particular circumstance. Um but from from where I'm sat as a coach, first of all, it's fantastic that there's so many Brits on the court. I mean, how great is that? You know, it wasn't that long ago that people were 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 saying how, you know, great you know, British tennis wasn't in a great spot, you know, all this sort of stuff. And now, you know, I think British tennis is in an amazing spot. We've got so many players on tour, singles and doubles, both doing unbelievably well. You've got Cam, Nori, Radicanu, you know, so you've got Joe, Neil Skapsky, Jamie, Andy, you know, still doing his thing. So from that perspective, it's fantastic. But obviously, when your team is there, you want your team to win and that's it. There's no, um, you know, as soon as you step on the court, you're your enemies to a certain extent, but also you're great sportsmen and, yeah, you know, you appreciate when someone's played too good or beaten you. Nice.
1: And tell me, on the guys, who's funnier?
0: I mean, they're both, they're both pretty funny. I mean, I, I, I tend to find Rajiv quite funny just because he's, he's, uh, he's a very, like, normal guy, just like Joe is, but then Rajiv will just come out with something off the cuff, which I just find absolutely hilarious. I mean, he's American. Maybe that adds to the humor a little bit more. You know, his sense of humor is slightly different to mine, but I find it extremely funny, like some of the stuff he might just come out with. You know, I can't give you an example, but I tend to find myself bursting out in laughter whenever Rajiv says something that might just be totally off the cuff.
1: Who's less punctual? Uh, Joe. Always late, is he?
0: He's, he's he's getting better, but yeah, he tends to be later out of the two, for sure.
1: And who who eats better?
0: Joe eats phenomenally well. Rajiv doesn't eat badly, but I think Joe, uh, yeah, he, he just eats, always eats clean. I mean, if you've seen the guy, the guy's the most chiseled person you've ever seen in your life. He's like a bloody Greek god.
1: Looking at it from the outside, I've, I met Joe briefly in Australia a few years ago, just he was with Dave and those guys, the English guys. And from hearing about him, he seems like the model athlete where, you know, trains his heart out, studies everything, eats the right food, hits the gym, and he's a, he's a good athlete as well, as well as being a great tennis player. So it's a nice package to have. And that's just from the outside now that I know.
0: Yeah, of. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of his, what I would call, like, super strengths. He's a phenomenal athlete, probably the best doubles athlete on the tour. Certainly, one of, and you know, he's he doesn't get complacent with developing that and improving that. You know, like you say, he's always in the gym, he always eats clean. But he eats clean, kind of quite naturally. It's not necessarily a conscious thing. He just kind of does it. You know, he he's willing to, you know, do extra if he feels like he needs to. Um, you know, he's he's a great model in that sort of. Uh...
1: And my final question on the lads is: who'd win in a singles game?
0: Uh, I'm gonna have to go with the. Prior better singles player, which is Rajiv.
1: Okay, I, I thought youth might have had a you know, might have changed things around a little bit.
0: No, I mean, they're both they both play good, but uh, yeah, I mean, Rajiv strikes the ball unbelievably well, better than most people, I think. And uh, yeah, he still plays singles pretty, pretty well.
1: Nice, Rob. And just one final question for you, Rob. What advice a lot of our listeners? I don't think there's too many professional top 100 athletes. Listen to us, there's only a hundred top athletes, and men and female and doubles so maybe 300, but most of the listeners would be recreational players, parents, younger juniors. What advice for you as a, a top professional coach would have for the recreational doubles player who wants to improve their club doubles?
0: Watch plenty of doubles, first of all. Watch as much as you possibly can and keep it super simple. Like it doesn't have to... The best tennis usually comes from doing the basics extremely well. You know, keep things extremely simple and... and you know, master those basic things, and usually, what that creates is excellence in its own right. And most of all, keep enjoying it. I mean, it's a—it's an unbelievable sport.
1: And any drills you can throw out there,
0: I think it would depend on the player. But uh, if you go on YouTube, go and uh, go on YouTube and type in Louis Kaya doubles drills. That's a—that's a good place to start.
1: you will be you you'll be there a while. <laughs> yeah, there's
0: plenty on there.
1: Rob thank you very much it's great hearing your story and your advice and yeah keep it going and best of luck towards the end of the year
0: thanks very much appreciate your time
1: hope you enjoyed that episode it's great to see a young lad out there working at the highest level of the game wishing all the best with you and your team in the coming months ahead and the years ahead and I'll be back next week and until then get out there and hit some tennis balls bye